Picture yourself in a gym, eyeing an array of free weights, machines, and numerous fitness programs. There's myriad of pathways to strengthen fitness, but knowing where to start can be overwhelming. Without appropriate guidance, you may end up spending precious time and energy on ineffective techniques, yielding little to no progress. Now envision having a seasoned personal trainer guiding you through the process. A trainer who can discern which exercises have proven effective, align with your goals, and minimize the risk of injury. The magic here lies in leveraging hard-earned wisdom to bypass pitfalls and accelerate progress. In the B2B SaaS universe, this gym metaphor finds perfect resonance. The landscape resembles our hypothetical gym with an infinite selection of growth strategies or workout regimens. Just as some workouts lead to a dead end of fatigue without gains, some strategies are unproductive and draining. The trick is to discern the effective strategies from the futile, a task that requires the guidance of a seasoned trainer, or in our case, a growth experimentation guru. Enter Andres Glusman, the co-founder and CEO of Do What Works. Andres is the veteran personal trainer of our metaphorical gym, deftly guiding companies through the maze of potential growth strategies. His background isn't theoretical. It's grounded in real-world experience. As part of the team that launched Meetup.com, Andres had an inside view into what works and what doesn't when it comes to growing a business. This firsthand experience gives him a unique ability to steer SaaS businesses away from ineffective strategies and toward the techniques that truly work. In today's episode, we're lacing up our sneakers and hitting the gym floor with Andres. We're going to delve into his world of growth experimentation, unpacking how he applies the principles he learned at meetup.com, and unveiling the critical role that smart growth experimentation can play in the transformation of your SaaS business. So grab your water bottle, crank up your workout playlist, and get ready to explore the secrets of effective growth experimentation. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Andres Glusman speaks with Andrew Davies about growth experimentation. They talk about embracing experimentation, learning from successes, avoiding past failures, leveraging real-world experience, and the key to guided learning. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of this podcast, tell us what resonated most about our guest's advice. Andres, why don't you just give me a, a little bit of an overview of uh, of your storied history before we dive into some of your uh, your experience around experimentation? Yeah, my storied history. I am a behavioral economist by training. I have been involved in the internet since the early days of the commercial internet, dating back to 1998. I ran some of the first experiments there online, but really uh, spent the last... Prior to launching my current company, I spent 15 years helping get meetup.com off the ground. So I helped launch Meetup, made their first $14 of revenue, led product and growth there, and uh, just had a wild, really interesting experience there over the course of a decade and a half. We became early pioneers in the startup movement, and then really was uh, there. It was my experiences there that motivated me to start my brand new thing, which at this point, I knew. At this point, it's three years old, but it still feels like a new thing. It's an overnight success story. Maybe let's go back, back to some of that Meetup journey since you mentioned it. So 15 years at meetup.com. That's an iconic brand in the in the space. And as you said, you, you took the first $14 of revenue. So maybe just give us a bit of a heads up as to what that 
company looked like as you were joining it and give us a few of the the highlights of that journey before we dive in so it was one of those things where the founder of ceo and, and co-founder of, of meetup a guy named scott heiferman he led the company that i had worked at very early in my career and so when he was starting meetup he said hey i'm starting this brand new thing can you uh do you want to join it with us i had just gotten into wharton business school and i said you know what i need to go back to school i need to get my head straight i just was part of a startup that really did terribly i need to go learn some stuff and he said well will you consult to us or we're off the ground. I said, sure. So I, I jumped in and helped prove out their business model in the very early days. And at that point, Meetup looked nothing like Meetup looks now or what it became. But at that point, the idea was that we could make money by charging businesses for the right to host Meetups in their locations. And so this is 2002. There was no such thing as like local Google ads or any of that stuff. None of it existed. And so it's kind of online local advertising. And we proved, we said, I said, great, I'll try and prove it out. So what I did is I got a list of companies that are businesses, restaurants that we were going to have meetups. Because at the time, the system worked in a way that a computer was automatically generating where meetups would happen. And it would send people randomly, by and large, to certain locations. So I got a list of the places where meetups were going to happen. And this is like from the first few hundred meetups that were occurring in the world at that point. And I, uh, I basically called them up and I said, hey, uh, we're sending 14 people your way next Tuesday. If you want us to keep sending people your way, you can pay us for that. And it'll cost you a dollar a person. And the person said, yeah, that's Sounds great. I'm in. It was Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington, D.C. If you've ever been there, it actually turns out to be a very iconic place. He said, yeah, I'm in. That's great. And I said, oh my goodness, this is it. We've locked in. This is going to be the most amazing business you've ever seen. I go to the next the name on the list and I give him the exact same pitch. And it's just like, boom, train wreck. Terrible call. And I said, halfway through the call, he's like, no, this is not for me at all. And I said, okay, okay. I'm not selling you anymore. I'm not going to take your money even if you try and give it to me. But can I ask you, is there anything that I said that was remotely interesting to you? And he said, yeah, getting people in the door is actually quite cool but I got a line going out the door on a Friday night and I don't need that. And so what I really want is people coming in on a Tuesday afternoon or a Wednesday morning or whatever the case may be during my slow times. And so over the course of 20 or 30 calls like this, where I just basically kept repeating over and over again, like running into the wall and then stopping the, the pitch and then asking for feedback and refining, we were able to hone in on a model that actually worked. And we were able to get that you know, into a sales team. And that actually helped us get our first round of financing in 2002 when it was impossible to get funding. So 2002 was the first money in, was it? Yes. Yeah. From DFJ uh, out on the West Coast. Yeah. Now let's fast forward all the way through to the end of that 15 years. How different did the business model, the scale of that business look? It became a really, really cool business. So there's a lot of changes we made along the way around uh, network to really capitalize on the network effects of the business. And the biggest thing that was changed was, in fact, moving to a model where there's organizers and members, which becomes a two-sided marketplace. And more members attract organizers and more organizers attract more members. And it became this really wonderful dynamic flywheel. And so the biggest challenge that we had at Meetup at the point was basically around how do you take this organic traffic that's coming your way? and make the remove the friction and figure out how to make the user experience as seamless and as easy for people as possible to help them get into meetups and to change the behavior around the world. And so what we really sort of honed in on over the course of that of that period, once we had this flywheel traffic, was this experimentation engine and getting people to like understand how to use experiments at meetup in order to help people get through an experience or try and accomplish the goal that we were helping them, we wanted to help them accomplish. And learned just a whole lot of lessons along the way, but meetup grew to 40 million people. It had a successful exit to uh, to WeWork at the time, which fortunately for us was, was an all cash deal, which was a very good thing for us. All of the the, the things that happened after the fact did not uh, did not affect us uh, personally too terribly. And that allowed me the opportunity to go take a year off and to go play. 
And so uh, at that point, that's where I, where I started sort of pioneering or playing with new ideas. You used a phrase there that I'm sure has a lot more meaning and definition behind it. You said experimentation engine to describe what you built. So what is an experimentation engine? What did you build there that, that could be scalable, that could be repeatable? Talk to me a bit more about the definition that sits behind that. It started like most things. It, did, it wasn't as, as glamorous as that. So I'm probably, you know, what it really started is, is very early on running and making changes on our website. And this is, we were kind of learning how the internet works worked and how to affect behavior. So there really wasn't a playbook for how do you run an experiment online. And what we noticed is that we would change things and nothing would happen. And we changed things. And over the course of six months, you just look back and you're like, what did we get from all of this motion? We didn't get anything out of it. No results from these things. And we didn't even learn anything. And at some point in along the journey, we sort of honed in this idea of like, well, what if we ran something as a split test or as an experiment where we systematically varied the experience for some people and then not for others and understood what would happen or not. And what, as as a result of doing that, the thing, couple things happened. One is we got lucky on the very first one, the very first few experiments we ran because we got a lift, and that was great. So it's extremely addictive to say, "Wow, I just not only I just changed something and it finally worked, right? It made a big difference." We had like a. 16% lift, I think, in conversion rate at the time, right? Uh, on this thing that was really important to us. And we were able to quantify it, and that was extremely important. But more importantly, we were able to start building momentum and learning from the thing that was changed and the outcome we saw. And invariably, what ends up happening is that the next several experiments that we ran did not move the needle. <laughs> had no effect, but we were able to learn from every single one of those. And so the experimentation engine at Meetup, ultimately, when, when I was leading product and growth there, was around a mindset and a culture of running experiments in order to figure out how to drive growth. Growth and being able to accomplish our goals by either running an experiment that created a lift or running one that created learning. And so sort of that classic saying that, you know, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. I think learning is what you get when you don't get the result you want in some regards when it comes to running experiments. But in an ideal world, you're getting both the learning and the lift every single time, but the world doesn't work that way. It doesn't cooperate. <laughs> But I guess if you're building the right culture of experimentation, then both lift and learning can be addictive, to use your word there, which is, I guess, how you build repeatability into the culture. So that's that's fantastic to hear. That's exactly right. It's like a straight dopamine hit to everyone in the culture, which is very, very interesting because there is such a thing as having two too much experimentation and being too addictive. And so addiction is actually probably the right word in this regard, because there's a time to pull back and a time to not run tests and a time to actually run those tests. Let's go a level, de level deeper on that word addiction then. So when you are working, you know, when you're working at Meetup or when you're working now with other companies, when you're you know, advising founders on thinking through that process, how do you get people hooked? What's that journey to get someone hooked on that process? I, momentum begets momentum. And so the, the reality is, is as early as possible, that you can get somebody to have a positive win in whatever journey they're on, the more likely they are to stick to it. This could be true when you're lifting weights, right? This is true when you're running experiments as well. The kiss of death for any, any culture, any company that's trying to run experiments is actually for the first few experiments to not work. Because then everyone who is a naysayer is going to basically throw water on it and be like, oh, this is a waste of time. And what people don't really realize is that that's sort of the natural order of things. Running experiments is a lot like being a VC. You know, and great VCs are lucky if they can get one out of 10 wins or two out of 10 wins with one being a home run. Same goes for experiments. This is a, an interesting fact, Andrew. I'm sure you, you probably know this from your experience as well. But according to, uh, to Optimizely, in fact, 80% of experiments that are run do not positively move the needle. Eight out of 10 produce learning and not lift. And so the question becomes, well, why? Right. And how do you actually overcome those odds to be able to get a positive, to be more likely to get that win? And yeah, no, 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 no. And so, so you can, uh, to, to, to your, to your point in terms of like what creates the addiction or what, what doesn't create the addiction. If you're lucky in one of those, you get that 
the first or few, one of those first two gets the win, great. But if you're just like the average player at a hand, if you were sitting at a, at a table in a casino and you had one in five odds, then you're going to only, you might go four hands without a win and you might get lucky and get a, get your hand on, get, get the win on the fourth, fifth one. It might take six or seven. You know, that's how statistics works. And so the, uh, the thing that creates the addiction is if you can sort of stack up those wins early on, because then people want it and they want more. Part of this is about setting the expectation that it might take five or six or seven goes. But is there also an approach where you want to load the dice as they're sitting down there you know, in the casino to make sure that there's more likelihood, an easier hypothesis or a frame of reference that helps the first few win? You know, how, do you, how do you think about that in advising companies to start this process? That's exactly right. So that's what motivated me to start Do What Works, because that was the pain that I felt. So I was running those experiments at Meetup. I saw that it takes a while to win. The way you load the dice, or I'll, I'll frame it the other way, which is like, why? Why is the odds one in five? Well, one is it's hard to change behavior. Let's just accept that. Like we're trying to change and invent things and it's hard to create things that work. But then the second thing is that no one learns from anyone else. Every lesson that any individual company is learning on how they're laying out their, their pricing page, on how they're conveying value, on how they're conveying discounts, on offering free shipping or not. Every single one of those is done in isolation and no one learns from anyone else. So they're all making the same experiments. They're all learning the same lesson, but no one's able to benefit from any other experiment, which is, can you imagine what science would be like right now if no scientists ever learned from any other scientists? And so our point of view, and this is my own personal experience, is that I overcame that one as a meetup by having meetings. I just just sit down with fellow product leaders in the New York area, and then I talk to the folks over at Etsy and the folks over at Shutterstock and really great, amazing, wonderful people. And we'd swap notes about what was working and that stack loaded the dice, as you say. I love that term. Loaded the dice in uh, in our favor. What motivated me with Do What Works is basically around like, well, what if we could create a way at scale to help people learn from every other experiment that's being run by people who are running experiments on the thing I'm thinking about running a test on. So that's what it's all about. But the reality is it's just like getting signal by any means possible as early in the process as possible to let you know if you're hallucinating or if you're actually onto something good. Let's go to the second part of that, you know, the other ditch, the second part of that journey. So you said, you know, the process to addiction is important and loading the dice there. So how do you know when uh, a culture is going beyond being a high-functioning addict to something where the experimentation is being used so frequently, actually, it's a crutch or a friction in the organization itself? The answer to every single question is let's test it. You know it's being used as a crutch. Or when the experiments themselves get smaller and smaller and smaller without the traffic getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you have Google size, it's totally cool to test 50 shades of blue. It's super cool because that represents gazillions of dollars, right? Billions and billions of dollars are on the line with different shades of blue. If you have, if you're a startup and you're testing 50 shades of blue, good luck. It's going to take you a million years to get that result. And so what ultimately comes down to and when, when you're running too many experiments is when the outcome of the test is not proportionately valuable to, to it doesn't cover your downside risk in a way that makes you makes it worth spending the effort to do. So you want to run tests on the things you're unsure about and that are very consequential, positively or negatively. And when an organization is addicted to running tests is when everyone is just running tests in order to say, I checked the box, I did it, the downside, you know, there was no downside, it's not my fault. When it's sort of around uh, avoiding risk as opposed to seeking gain, that's when you're running to an experiment. And maybe this is where we can start hearing a bit more about do what works. But in in that process, and you know, with founders that I've worked with who are looking at adopting a more scientific process here, often there's lots of head nodding when they read Lean Startup or you know read some of the methodology. But the common frictions that I hear will be things like the amount of 
time that it takes and they don't have the resource in the team or you know not understanding the process in their practical environment or you know the statsic question like i just don't have enough data points for this to be statistically significant what else do you see in that you know list of reasons why not and yeah and then talk to me a bit about uh, how you encourage people to overcome that and the unfortunate truth is that they're right on all those fronts so they're not wrong it does take forever to run an experiment and as, as you get smaller and smaller it takes you longer and longer it is often the case that you are going to be wrong and that's okay as well, right? So you need to have those expectations up front. It does take work. It does slow you down. You're creating two variations of something. Those, and so for the, so they're all right. The reality for us though is, is like we work with six of the top streaming brands. We work with eight B2B SaaS unicorns and, and major banks. They're constrained. They're not where they, they, they feel like it takes them too long to get an experiment and get the results. And so the reality is, is why would you be crazy enough to invest a month if, if against all these odds? And the reason is because the impact of any given experiment when it breaks in your favor can be pretty substantial. 20% win in a smaller company or even a 5% win in a very large corporation like some of the companies we work with at the times is a lot of money and it makes a huge difference. And so it's worth taking a few shots at and trying a few different variations because it works out. And in our regard, sort of the VC model is exactly the right model for it. It's, it's a good analogy because why do VCs invest in, in all those companies? Because they only one or two are really going to generate the results and the return on the fund. And so you sort of want to approach experimentation in the same way. As long as the outcome can give you a really big, big result, which is what most conversion optimization does, you have a very positive effect by improving conversion optimization because all the money you spent getting people to your website, all the money you're spending on your ads to try and get people through suddenly becomes worth 10% more. And that's a pretty massive lift. That's a huge influx of resources into your organization. And you can either bank it, take it as profit, or you can use that to outspend your competitors in advertising or in acquiring more companies or et cetera, et cetera. And so when I when I you know go to do what works, I see you can't test everything. You might as well do what works. Um, so talk a little bit to us about that the proposition and and how people can learn from other people's winners and losers to to load the dice. We've built is an engine that detects the experiments that are being run focused on growth from any company. And so for any company we care to look at. We can understand what experiments they're running, what's winning and losing. We then allow our clients to be able to use that data upfront before running experiments or before making changes to more effectively write ad copy, to be able to optimize their experience based on what is in fact winning for other people that are in their space. And so they're direct competitors to some degree, but more, much more interesting is if you're a product-led growth company, you can learn as much from the pricing page on uh, a completely, uh, you know, a company that you don't really, you don't compete with as one that you do. You can learn as much from like Calendly, for example, right? Or you can learn as much from uh, from Airtable as you can learn from looking at your direct competitor. We're going to have to make sure we continue this uh, continue this specific discussion uh, uh, off mic and off camera because I know you know with with the the proper world metrics data set, you know, the, we've we've got 35,000 companies there where we look at you know not just you know their financial metrics, but we you know start looking at pricing pages and other things there. So there might be some very interesting ways of uh, of of playing around with exposing more of that for the industry's benefit. So um, let, let, let's take that one offline. <laughs> and just so you know, I didn't even bring this up, but but ProfitWell and Protect the Hustle has been such a fundamental part of my journey over the last few years, especially during the pandemic. Uh, listening to that and going on walks and getting out of the house and listening to this specific show. And we actually drew a lot of lessons from the show and from your experiences there and, and are, have modeled some of our specific strategies actually as a result of some of the lessons you all have shared. I really, really want to thank you for that. 
Hey, that's great. Yeah, hey, it uh, it's lovely to see the rising tide of information that's based on data. And you know, we definitely want to be continuing contributors to that, but I know a lot of other people too. And, and thinking about the contributors and educators in this space, you know, you mentioned the lean startup movement and you know, I was quickly Googling now to work to, to remind myself when the four steps to the epiphany was published. So, you know, Steve Blank, that that's two thousand and five, right? And then obviously Eric Reese with, with Lean Startup, I think was probably two thousand and eleven, it looks like. You know, are there other seminal tomes that you point to that are more recent than those? And if not, or if so, what are the learnings that are updated for this decade if those are the two prior decades? Those two books, Four Steps to the Epiphany, was just an epiphany moment for me in reading it. I had my classic journey that a lot of people went through in the early days at, at that time, and it opened my eyes to so many things and ways of thinking. Eric Reese became a friend of mine as a result. We there was uh, part of the Lean Startup movement was actually powered by meetups. There, there were meetups everywhere around Lean Startups. I ran one in New York uh, with a couple guys that I'm really great friends with, and we had five thousand members. The um, he's actually an investor in Do What Works now too to go full circle, which is really really great. To your question though, what a wonderful question. I think the people who are producing the best insights right now on the sharing front are probably a lot of the folks over at uh, at OpenView and Kyle Poyer. Yes. And, and the product-led growth movement and a lot of the folks that I really enjoy watching on LinkedIn and in Casey Hill, for example, are on how to, you know, how to how to work through and in, in, in lots of strategies on marketing. It's all happening on LinkedIn. And it's all happening on carousels at the moment. I'm personally very addicted to LinkedIn carousels, but it's amazing what you can learn on LinkedIn carousels. Uh, we're contributing our own. We're putting our own out there right now too, just to give give back. But I think it's all happening there. And it's really to your point though. I think it's very use case specific and it's super tactical. It's less strategic at this point and much more just like here's the email I wrote. Here's the thing I did. Here's the very specific thing. So I think people at this point are like almost thinking more, almost like object-oriented programming, where they're looking for building blocks and trying to stitch together the building blocks to be able to make something really cool and build upwards and have it be an emergent strategy or an emergent thing, as opposed to a philosophical framework. Go use this framework in order to make this, that, or the other happen. I should point actually, wait, I should give props to ProfitWell too. Come on. with uh, I should give some props over to your team over there too, Ben Paddle, because you all definitely are giving that to the industry too. How, how, how did I even not think about that right away? I think uh, on the book front, it definitely means there's a space for you for the 2020s update of some of this. So so maybe we should be marking that on our bookshelf, a, a space ready for it. You know what's funny is um, Do What Works actually originated in part because I was taking time off between Meetup and thinking about my next thing. And I was starting to play with ideas. And one of the ideas I was playing with was, was a book called Lessons from the Fringe, where I wanted to go analyze the, what you can learn from drug dealers and what you can learn from different industries that are sort of on the fringe, like street meat, the, like the vendors in New York City and the porn industry and those other like different sectors and how you can learn from them. And that was the book that I was actually thinking about. And it was on trying to think about that and trying to think about how would I understand their business that I actually hit upon the idea for, uh, for Do What Works in terms of one of the methodologies. It in the spirit of learning where there isn't a lift, you know, could you talk us through some of the um, the abject failures on that journey at Meetup? Because, I mean, that was a fantastic success story from the outside in. But talk to us from the inside. And it doesn't have to be experiments. It could be, you know, strategies or cultures. Talk to us a bit about what you would have done differently if you'd had that journey again, and then what people can learn as they're listening to this. It's interesting because it is one of those things where the lessons definitely reinforce the bigger point of view that, that I now feel very strongly about and that I, that I put out there. The biggest failures came from being big bet driven 
and and the biggest successes also came from being big bet driven. It's hard to note the difference. So in the early days, for example, the I described a little bit about what Meetup 1.0 looked like, and then there was a massive redesign towards this organizer member model. You can't get bigger as a bet than that. That was one of the biggest bets you could possibly make, throwing out the entire way the system worked. But why did it work? It worked because we saw people using Meetup in a very specific way and creating groups around it and almost hacking our system to do things in a very specific way. They started having organizers and members. And so we changed the platform to map to how people were using it. There were times, and we got, that was great. And that was a very big bet. It was a huge, there were times though, later in Meetup where we said, we want to get stuck function growth. We don't want to keep growing at this nice linear way. We want to get like a really explosive growth. And so if we need to be prepared to make a bigger bet. The approach that we took was around saying, let's completely rethink how this should happen. And it wasn't pulled from examples in the wild of how people were using it. It wasn't pulled from looking at data that gave us a signal about this thing. It was very vision driven. And every time we try to create behavior in a vision-driven way, as opposed to letting a, a behavior be emergent and making it really, really simple, we would fail. And so there was a time, and it was a very painful time at the company where we had the entire team working for months and months and months on this one you know, big massive redesign and we relaunched the platform and it went so poorly. <laughs> Could not have gone worse. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a terrible launch. And the reason for it, the biggest reason was because we didn't take the steps in between to like say, well, can we find a signal that proves or like validates is a good idea as opposed to it purely being vision oriented. And, and those were the failures. And so the, like when I look back at my career, the same is true at Meetup or other times or other things I've done. It's when there's an emergent behavior or when there's signals that you're sort of capitalizing on and trying to make better, that's when things really magically work out. And that's where innovation can really happen when it's completely like a point of view that says, we're going to try to make this brand new thing happen in a different way. No, I've, I've yet to see that work. And so then if we take it back into the realm of hypotheses and experiments, I think one of the phrases um, that we loved in your pre-interview uh, chat with Ben was the phrase, don't recreate the losers. So talk to us about what that means and how you can avoid upfront the losers. The reason I believe, like I was saying, that 80% of experiments fail to move the needle. They only produce learning. The reason they fail, that because you're recreating a test that somebody else has run, that could have given you a signal. You're conveying your, your pricing in a certain way and you want to, uh, you're sort of having your best idea, you're using own assumptions. You're starting with an assumption that is fundamentally flawed for yourself and you're running the test and you're ultimately recreating something that other people have done that has lost. And the best way to not recreate the losers is to learn from other people and to see what worked and didn't work. Of course, I'd love everybody to use my service to be able to do that. That'd be great. I would love that. You could also talk to your friends over at, you know, at, at a different industry who are solving the same problem, you know, like I did. You can look for other examples. What you just don't want to do is copy blindly. I've seen people do this, which is our system detects these experiments that are being run. And you can see somebody, I've seen an example where there's one company that copied the experiment that was being run by another company in real time, but they copied the losing variant. And so they just went to the website. They saw, oh, there's a brand new way of presenting the offering. We're going to copy that. We're going to test it. So they ran the exact same test, spending a month or two recreating everything about that in their own style, because that's sort of their, their kind of a fast follower model. And they then relearned this other company could have revealed to them. And so by sort of fundamentally understanding like what signal you pay attention to or making sure that if you can understand what worked or didn't work for somebody else, by any signal possible, by a system like ours, by conversations, by virtue of reading somebody's case studies, whatever you can find online, that's the way to avoid spending time on stuff that doesn't work is by getting the right signal front and saving yourself 
from having wasted your most precious resource, which is which is ultimately time. I'm intrigued whether you think that or whether you advise people to go and learn from very close competitors in the same segment or geo or price point or whatever that segmentation might be, or whether you actively encourage people to build on the assumptions or the tests of companies and teams that are outside your segment, your attributes. People come to us uh, a lot of times. One of the things we're excited about is seeing what their competitors are testing. And I think that's pretty cool. I think it's way cooler, though, to see what other people are testing that are in adjacent space. So there's a famous, fabulous case study from Southwest Airlines. And Southwest Airlines in the United States is famous for being able to be very efficient and get their planes off the ground fast. Because when planes are on the ground, they're not making money. When planes are in the air, they're, they're making money. So you need a pick crew. You need a, you need a, a ground crew that's able to change up, the, get a plane service and out the door. Who do they study? They didn't study American. They didn't say American Airlines. They didn't study United Airlines. They didn't study Virgin. They studied Formula One pick crews. And they learned that they were just trying to understand what worked or didn't work for a Formula One pick crew in order to figure out how to make their ground crews and get uh, more efficient to get the planes back up in the air. And so for me, I'd rather see somebody learning not from their direct competitor, but from learning from other people that are in a similar space, that are targeting small businesses or a product-led growth oriented nature that are maybe a consumer subscriptions that are so that are they're not in the meal kit space but maybe they're selling boxes of dog toys or whatever the case may be i think you can learn as much if not more because you tend to get into very tunnel vision when you're focusing in on your competitors and more than not you're often learning the wrong things you're probably pulling out or teasing up the wrong things the exception to that is of course with messaging i think messaging what works for your competitors in messaging, if you can understand the messaging that is most likely to resonate because they're talking directly to your target audience, I think you can learn a lot about them. And so what I would like to say is don't learn from your competitors, learn through your competitors, like see what they do and try and understand parts that are applicable to you and borrow that. It's worth borrowing. You don't have to be too proud. There's things that don't matter in the big scheme of things that are the differentiator, but if they can reduce friction for your customers and make their life better, allow you to focus all of your chips and energies on the things that actually do matter that will differentiate you. And that's the kind of thing I think you learn by looking in adjacent spaces. So it's a little, it's a little bit of a yes and, but you got to know what to look for from your competitors and what to look for for other companies that are more in an inspiration set. Let's just jump into practical coaching mode. We'll have a bunch of founders listening to this at various stages, but let's let's set a, an imaginary context. You know, there's a, a business that's, you know, perhaps a product-led business that is, you know, in, in their first few months, and they're getting a bit of traffic through their user user acquisition funnel and are thinking now about experimentation. You know, what are the what's the checklist of tasks that you would want to walk them through in order for them to set up, to measure, and to learn from their first few experiments as a business? The very first thing I would do is encourage them to understand what are their golden pages, what are the areas, what are the key experiences that are the most fundamental experiences in the entire experience. And most early stage companies are fortunate because they don't have that many experiences. And so they're very few, few of our routine, but there's really kind of just a handful of places where all roads lead through and you want to devote as much of your firepower to making that experience as great as possible. The first question is, do you have enough traffic to actually run an experiment? And if you do, if you don't go Try and grab from the best practices of everyone else, put your best guess forward and move on. Don't, if you're early, early stage, don't bother running a ton of experiments if it's going to take you three months, five months to get results on any one given page. Do your best guess, put your best foot forward and move on. Don't run the test. As you start to reach a certain level of scale and you've got money you're sending, you're trying to get people through and small improvements in that conversion rate, meaningful improvements make a big difference. Isolate in on the most important variables and the most important mechanics that a user is going to go through that has to break in your favor. And so the thing I love to say at this early stage, the question I always ask is, what has to break in your favor? 
in order for this thing to work. And it might be achieving a certain cost of acquisition for an early stage company. It might be getting a single customer. <laughs> it might be having somebody you know, pay, you, pay you for the second or third month in a row and devote all your resources on that thing first and foremost, and then work backwards from there to the other to the other components. As you start scaling up and start running more experiments or you're trying to create a more robust program, so maybe a little less founder and more like head of marketing programs, right? Where you now have a scale, like like probably some of the challenges you're facing here. You didn't ask me for coaching, but, 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 I'll, but I'll give it to you if, if you'd like. But it's around prioritization. So the problem starts to become you start having organizations where you have more ideas than you have time to address them. And you have more data or you have more opinions than you have people in a, is generally the way it usually works. And so I like to joke that like product management and marketing in some regards are, are team sports, but they're full contact team sports. And so you have a lot of people with a lot of strong opinions, but not a lot of data. And so the, to the degree to which you can use data to help you prioritize the results or to prioritize the sequence and get alignment. That's fundamental to actually like getting a team aligned and getting it going. It's probably one of the most important things because an organization of that size, it's actually making sure that things don't bump into each other on the route to finding that honing in on the experiments that are most likely to make the biggest results. That is the biggest challenge. And you don't, the cruel joke around experimentation is that you only get the data after you run the test. Not, but when you need it is before you run the test. The general feedback and the coaching I gave is to try and get your hands on data as early in the process as possible. And then as you start moving into the execution phase, the thing I always really love to see is having the team that's working on it be able to look at other things together. To use a non-example, like you could do that uh, by looking at experiments that other people have run, but you could also, let's say you're thinking about launching a brand new feature and you're launching, I'm trying to imagine one that you might want to launch, but you might be launching something and you see that Stripe has a similar functionality on this one thing. I know you don't compete with Stripe, but imagine that there's sort of a similar enough functionality there, maybe from Venmo or whatever the case may be. I'm just, you're trying to launch a consumer-oriented feature. There's no reason why you can't use ability test people using Venmo, for example, or using that thing and getting signal before you line dial a single line of code by looking at actual users using the thing. And so it's really around getting data by any means necessary, by qualitatively, through conversations, through quantitative, through, uh, through being able to harvest other people's experiments, whatever the case may be, getting the data upfront to inform the team that's running the executions to be able to make better assumptions. Because ultimately, when you make better assumptions, that's the difference between something hitting and something missing. Uh, one of the things we do as part of these is we publish a, a field guide that comes out of the, the discussion and, and some of the clarity in that framework I know will come through as part of that, that, that field guide. So thank you. It's really interesting. You, you use the word opinion in there. And it, it reminded me of um, when I was working at Optimizely. So I was running brand demand and digital. So the, the whole web property rolled up to me, the web team rolled up to me. And it was the first example I'd come across of experimentation as a response to Hippo, to the highest paid person in the room's opinion. <laughs> and I can remember because we were having to redesign the new top level nav for the, for the website. Um, for optimizely.com and every department wanted their thing or their top level nav and i can remember when she's a fantastic hr leader but she she came and said well we need careers on that top level nav because we've got loads of hiring to do and therefore we need the careers up there unfortunately the web team was strong enough and robust enough to say we'll take your opinion and it'll become a hypothesis in a test we run and it ran through a process 
And it was extremely obvious to everyone after a month that you know having careers up on the up on the top level now as one of our options that we were testing. Firstly, almost no one clicked on it, and those that did, they didn't apply for a job. And that actually, you know, even if we looked to the next level of the people who applied, the people who needed it on the top level now to find their way to apply were probably not the applicants we wanted. And so I thought that was just a really nice response to executive opinion. I don't know if you've got any uh, fond examples of of experiment setting culture, but I know as we as we draw to the end of our time here, maybe there's there's an example that comes to mind that you can use as, as helping founders set culture using experimentation. It is such a great example at a large organization of sort of trying to put a debate to bed. And there are so many debates that linger and linger and linger. And it's so funny. There was uh, an organization we were working with and they were telling us that they had been, there's been this lingering debate that's been going on forever where the marketing team wanted to use these big, beautiful lifestyle photos. And the product team wanted to use product screenshots and product inventory. And the design team wanted to use these kind of cute Notion-esque illustrations, these characters, these little drawings that are now very popular on the net. And all three teams had basically just been like locking horns for forever about it. And what they said to us is they said, well, you've got a huge data trove. You have a, you have a vast well of data that you can tap. What's the pattern across all experiments you're seeing related to imagery and use of imagery in our space? Is it drawings? Is it product imagery? Or is it cartoons? Or, or is it cartoons? And we were able to distill it down and sort of analyze the likelihood of any one of those things winning in their space based on an, uh, an analysis we did, kind of a meta analysis of experiments, borrow from scientific terms, and give them a recommendation that ultimately let them put that to bed and sort of said, okay, here's what here's what it is. For your industry, it's this, this, and this. Uh, they ran one more test and then they put that to bed. They say, okay, yes. Okay. We now agree. I think it was that product imagery uh, was superior to, to these drawings. And so we're getting rid of the drawings and we're going with the product imagery and we're moving forward in their space. So it was one of those things where uh, it was able to put the debate to bed. What I think is really funny about your story is that you just sort of, well, one is that it was optimizedly. So like there couldn't be more, a better fit of a culture that's willing to accept the results of an experiment. But two is that you had to spend a month, like the whole month got consumed putting that debate to bed. And that's the part that I, it's like when I think about our industry and I think about where we're going and the role that I want to play is I want to save people from spending that month. I, I just feel so bad that like you didn't spend that month doing something else that was so much better, right? Or so much cooler. And, and so it's it's one of those things where it is important from a culture point of view to like have a data backed opinion, like have it be backed by data. Because, you know, if you don't, then it is just opinion. And it's great to actually, if, if you don't do that, it will linger. And these things create scars on an organization. To your point about founders, though, it's one of those questions from a founder point of view the hardest thing and that I have to keep an eye on a lot is around you're a founder because you have more ideas. You have a lot of ideas. Like you feel really inspired by inventing and creating new things. And you need to be careful to couch the things you're saying is this is take it or leave it. This is not set in stone. I don't really, I don't, I think it's a cool idea, but we can go in any number of directions Just so often it like a, a, somebody will hear something and say, oh, I need to immediately lock in. And so the ability to sort of create a culture where the, anyone feels comfortable questioning the CEO or questioning the founder and sort of the expression, no sacred cows is one that I really, really appreciate and say that anyone can bring this up. And if you can test it and prove your way out of it, then great. In fact, proving me wrong is the best thing you could do because I just learned something. And that's the hardest thing to instill in a culture, especially as you get larger. I'll tell you one quick story, Andrew, that related to this. If you at Meetup, those, uh, what I used to do when I really wanted to build a culture of experimentation is we used to have lunch and learns for every new employee. And they would have lunch with the head of HR, they'd have lunch with the head of finance, they'd have the head 
lunch with different team leads over the course of their first month at Meetup. And what I would always do on my lunch and learn is I would show them seven experiments that I had run at Meetup over the years. And I'd show them variant A and variant B. And I would make everyone in the room guess which one won. And then I'd reveal the answer. And of course, I designed it in a way that it was always the most counterintuitive test. <laughs> like there's no way you could get seven in a row right. In fact, over the course of doing it, I did it over the course of three years. Only one person ever got all seven right. And you should hire her, by the way. She's, she's a genius. But uh, only one person ever got all seven right. And the reason I did that was because I wanted everyone to know that you're going to be wrong a lot when you're trying to change behavior, when you're running an experiment. And that's why we run these experiments. And those experiments reveal to you the actual lesson to learn or make you better at figuring out where to go. And I wanted everyone to fail public in front of their peers, in front of a senior leader at the organization to know that it's not a big deal. And it was kind of painful for people at first. You could see them being very reluctant and I had to be very kind and gentle and kind of jocular as I was trying to get people to do it. But I do think that those are the kinds of things you have to do to get people to accept it. Another trick you can do is have public betting on what will win. So every experiment that your team launches, have an, you know have a, a, a poll and have the winners be people who guessed it correctly, be entered to win a prize, for example, around those things. We used to call it bet on red because our meetup controllers were red. So there's a lot you can do to build the buy-in, but the more you can get people comfortable being wrong, the better. That's really cool and, and really sound advice. I was just thinking, I scribbled down as you were running there, proving me wrong is the best thing you can do. I'm going to take that away from myself as a challenge for me back to my, my next team meeting. That's a, a, a great thing for every leader to make sure that there are no sacred cows in their organization. So thank you. And I can't believe we've run through all of our time so quickly. I could talk to you for hours, but I really appreciate the wisdom you've brought and, uh, and, and the guidance you've brought. And yeah, I know this will be so helpful to so many of our listeners. So thank you. I'm so happy to hear that. And again, uh, Protect the Hustle is such a special place in my heart that I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I'm thrilled to give back. Andres, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'll, I'd love to catch up soon. When I'm over in New York next, I'd love to, love to get a coffee and hear more. Deal, deal. You're on. Shout out to Andres for being on the show. Now you have a better understanding of growth experimentation. Today, we talked about embracing experimentation, learning from successes, avoiding past failures, leveraging real-world experience, and the key to guided learning. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.